Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It's found on page 859 in your pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take that one with you. It'd be a gift from us. We'd love for you to have it. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And then when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, and welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm grateful that you're here with us this morning as we continue in our Rediscovering Jesus, asking some of those questions of who was Jesus, and uh, what is he like, and trying to come at those afresh. And so as we do that this morning in uh, Luke chapter 4 today, I want to begin by uh, praying and asking for God's Spirit to be at work uh, helping us. Uh, to set aside our preconceived notions and to hear from Jesus afresh today. So, Father in heaven, thank you that you uh, have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that as we look at the words that that Holy Spirit inspired on the pages of Scripture this morning, in Luke chapter 4, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, that we would fall more deeply in love with him, and that we would be changed as a result. And it's in his name that we pray, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, I recently read a book titled The Whole Brain Child. It's a parenting book that sort of takes the best of kind of contemporary insights into um, brain science and how our brains work and, and tries to apply those to, to parenting. If you are a parent, a grandparent, uh, a teacher, if you've never read The Whole Brain Child, it's a great book, really, really helpful. And I'm just going to tell you, the first couple weeks after finishing this book, I was nailing it with these new parenting insights. You know, I was like, oh, like, this is what's happening, and I can apply this kind of technique to help kind of redirect here, and this is great. I mean, I kind of, moments of, I felt like a little bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi, like, like with a Jedi mind trick kind of thing. Like, I'd say this or have him do some activity, and it's like, oh, this is crazy. This is working. I mean, it was amazing. I thought, you know, I'm never going to raise my voice again to my kids or get frustrated with them again. Like, this is going to be so amazing. Uh, but you know where this is going, right? <laughs> then Tuesday night happened, and I was home by myself with, with all three kids, and it's post-dinner, and, and I'm trying to get them to go potty and brush their teeth so we can read a story, and they can finally go to bed. 
Uh, and in the midst of that cajoling and prodding and pleading, uh, that moment, it, somehow all three of them kind of started losing it. And, and one of them uh, is crying. And instead of trying to do what I should have done, what I learned from the book, what I just know intuitively is right as a human, try to connect right brain to right brain and really care for her in that moment, I, instead I bent down and reverted to that ever-effective technique of just the angry voice of stop crying and do what I told you to do. Which, of course, doesn't work. Doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for anybody, right? Uh, you know, and I said, I was never going to do that again. I knew, I'd never need to do that again. And yet there I was again, yelling at a child that I love. Doing to her what if anyone else would have done to her, I would have pushed them out of the way and said, you don't ever talk to my kid like that. Right? But there I was again in that moment. And minutes later, I'm there having to ask my kids, all three of them, for forgiveness. Some, for some reason, I was like cleaning something. I was like down, literally down on my knees, like in the bathroom. All three of them there. I think all three of them were really crying at that point and saying, I'm sorry, you know, Daddy, you didn't handle that well. Uh, you need to, can you forgive me? Um, and, right, but it's not just parenting, right? There are a bunch of things on that I'm never going to do it again list. And then I do it again. And the question is, is it always going to be a losing battle? And, and you, I'm sure, have your list too. At least most of us do those things about ourselves that we wish weren't there. And maybe, maybe I don't know what your list is. Maybe it's, I, I'm not going to gossip anymore. I'm never going to do that anymore. Or, or I'm never going to look at porn again. Or I'm not going to let fear control me anymore. Or I'm not going to try to find comfort in food or drink anymore. I'm not going to belittle or control or manipulate the people closest to me anymore. Until the next time. And you do it again. And in those moments, you know, we respond sort of in self-justification sometimes. Well, it wasn't really that bad or, you know, gosh, the, the kids were really being difficult or yeah, it just had been such a hard day. I really needed that drink or sometimes it's more of apathy. Like, you know, who cares? Like, it's always going to be, I've tried and it's always going to be this way. Why even keep trying anymore? Which that often kind of just leads to despair. Like, you know, I'm just a terrible person. <laughs> and, and I just, I don't even like myself anymore. And so much so that we stop fighting and just kind of consign ourselves. I guess this is just the way it's always going to be. I'm just going to always be the person who, you know, you fill in the blank. But what if I told you this morning that you don't have to lose anymore? That you don't have to lose anymore. And you might say, Bill, I, you know, if you said that, I, I would think you're selling something. But what if lasting change is really possible? Now, not overnight, I would be selling something if I said that. Not overnight, not even necessarily in you, but over a lifetime, a lifetime, is change really possible? Well, this morning here in Luke chapter 4, we find one of, actually one of the strangest stories in the Bible. I think many of us, uh, you know, we're so familiar with some of these passages in the gospel. If you grew up in the church and um, you just sort of, of course, this moment happened. But if you, if you haven't, or if you just kind of try to read it afresh, like, this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. And yet it's also one of the most hopeful, beautiful, life-giving accounts in the Gospels, these theological biographies of Jesus. 
And this is a story that was precious to, to Jesus. And as you heard it read, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, but maybe you noticed, like in this story, in this account, there are only three characters named that are present, right? So there's the Holy Spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness, there's Jesus, and then there's the devil, the tempter. There's no disciples there with him, there's no one watching this unfold, which means, why do I point that out? Which means that at some point, Jesus had to have told this story to his disciples. Have you ever thought about that? How did we get this, how did Luke eventually hear this story and write it down in the gospel. Jesus would have sat down at some point and told his disciples the story. I mean, you can kind of imagine, maybe it was one night they were walking uh, late on a journey together, or maybe they were sitting around the fire, and, and Jesus says, did I ever tell you about the time? The time that I was tempted? This question that we've been asking throughout this series is, what do we rediscover about Jesus in each of these accounts in Luke? So we try to lay aside our notions and our ideas and just look at him for who he is, look at him afresh. And I think what we discover here in Luke chapter 4 is this, that Jesus won so that we don't have to lose anymore. Jesus won so we don't have to lose anymore. And we're going to tell the story, and we're going to tell a story first just looking at Jesus' victory because it's so unique. This is not our story. Jesus is not us. His temptation is unique. This is a unique moment in salvation history. So we're going to focus on him and his victory first. But then we are going to move to see what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? So first, let's just kind of take a look at the story. Again, the story opens with these words. Notice the line, uh, returned from the Jordan. And the Jordan was a key river in the area. So it sets the the context, right? So uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. And that was where uh, John the Baptist was baptized. And returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, the setting of this story is so key, right? So in the story, it says you get these two key terms. One, it's 40 days, and it's in the wilderness. Now, you might be thinking, okay, cool, 40 days in the wilderness, so what? Those are just the details of the story Luke's giving us. That is true. Those are the details of the story. But Luke is drawing on this long set of, of uh, history in the Old Testament stories, right? When you think about this, it's, he, we're using that language of 40 days and wilderness immediately calls our minds back to Israel's wandering for 40 years in the desert, 40 years in the wilderness, where they were tested, where they faced trial and temptation, where Israel repeatedly failed, right? God delivers them out of Egypt, brings them out into this place and promises them that he's going to provide for them. And they don't believe him. They, they fail again and again. And so what this does, is it kind of calls this to mind. And, and now Luke is building this tension. Israel lost again and again and again in the wilderness. Will Jesus lose too? And then listen, uh, continuing on in verse 2, how the evil one, the tempter, the accuser, all names that the scriptures give to this supernatural personal evil, listen to how he comes at Jesus. He does it just in the same way that he did with Eve all the way back on page 3 of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. He comes with this sort of implied question. Verse 3 And he, Jesus, ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Probably one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. And the devil said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. If, right, do you hear that implied question, that pushing? If you're really the Son of God, then do this. Prove it. How did the evil one come to Eve in the garden? Did God really say, if you are really the Son of God? And he goes straight to the heart of Jesus' identity, trying to sow seeds of doubt. Maybe you're not really the Son of God. Can you prove it? He begins to sow seeds of doubt, just like he did with Eve, sowing seeds of doubt about the goodness of God and God's word. He does that with Jesus' identity here. It's also interesting to me that both in the garden, uh, here in the wilderness, as well as is, is with Israel's journeys in the wilderness with the manna and all of that, sometimes we go back and read some of those texts, but that food is at the center. And such a powerful image of what is needed to sustain life. And the question in all those instances is, will we ultimately look to something created for life or to the creator? When push comes to shove, will we look to a created thing to receive life or to the creator? And Adam and Eve, they blew it in the garden. They ate. So did Israel in the wilderness. They complained and wanted to go back to Egypt where there was food. That was their chief complaint. Like, you've brought us out here to die in the wilderness. There is no food here. We would rather go back to Egypt where we were enslaved because at least there was food to eat there. Because they didn't trust that God would provide for them. So Adam failed. Israel failed. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus wins. And so there's the three temptations that he faces. First is the one, prove your God. Turn the stone to bread. Aren't you hungry, Jesus? You've earned it. Show us who you really are. But Jesus responds with Scripture. He says, food's not the most important thing. My desires are not the most important thing. I can feast on God's word. Then there's the second temptation. Fine, Jesus, don't eat, but look around at all the kingdoms of the world. The evil one says, riches, power, glory, I will give it to you, and you don't have to go to the cross to receive it. You can be king without the cross. That is the temptation here. Jesus, you can have all this without suffering, pain, and death. All you have to do is worship me. But again, again, Jesus responds with Scripture, worship God alone. And then the third temptation The evil one takes Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem and he puts him on the kind of the highest point of the temple. There's a picture, so you can imagine that high tower in the center. And this time, Satan tries scripture on Jesus. Jesus keeps responding to scripture. This time, Satan actually quotes a scripture to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I bet if you jump off, God will send angels to catch you. God promised that he would keep your foot from stumbling. And what a show it would be. People would believe. They would believe this demonstration. So go ahead, Jesus, and jump. But Jesus again responds with Scripture correctly, not distortedly. Because this one just quick insight here into the evil one is that he knows and can use Scripture and twist it and distort it. But Jesus responds rightly and says, I am not going to put God to the test. And then the account ends in verse 13 with these words, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There's another time of temptation coming. Luke leads that little bit of tension to continue to build in the story. But that's the story, right? And it it is sort of strange. It's kind of a bizarre story, especially if you begin to think about it afresh and just not think of, well, of course this happens. And and why does does Luke include this? What does this have to do with us? 
Why did Jesus and then Luke retell this story in that it's included in three out of the four Gospels actually contain this account? Well, I think there are three reasons this morning. The first is this. Uh, The first, the story shows us that the battle is worse than we think. The battle is worse than we think. But you and I, we look at our own temptations or the evil of this world and we rationalize. We say, well, if we could just educate people or if we just heal that hurt or if that person would just be less terrible or if my spouse would just be more like this or stop doing that or if I would just try a little harder then we could really make progress in this. Essentially, my, my sins, my failings aren't that bad, or, and our world is not really that bad. But again, test that theory, right? If, if your sins aren't that bad, why haven't you stopped? And again, maybe you're here this morning and you're sort of new to this whole church thing. You're like, I don't know about this language of sin, but, but right, we all have things. We all have habits. We all have patterns that we wish were different, that we wish we could stop. Why, why haven't we stopped? You know, it's only when we try to stop and fail and then try again and fail, only then we begin to realize how much power some of these things truly have over us. And it's not just the power of temptation that we minimize, it's also that we minimize the power or even the existence of a tempter. That there is a personal, spiritual being devoted to our destruction. Jesus is so clear that there is a enemy, a supernatural, personal evil enemy out to destroy his good creation, to destroy us as image bearers. So listen, if you are uh, fighting sin, you need to realize there is someone stronger than you, smarter than you, who understands temptation way better than you, right? This is the, the evil one who has been at the work of temptation and persuading people to turn away from God from the very beginning of time. He's been at it a long time. He knows your weaknesses and your vices better than you do. He is rooting against you, seeking to devour you. Again, if you're coming from a place of maybe less involvement in church or you're kind of a little bit skeptical, maybe quickly this could move in your mind to kind of the ridiculous, like you're imagining Homer Simpson kind of with the little devil on his shoulder, right? That's not what I'm saying. Nor by saying that there is a real uh, tempter out there, am I sort of giving any of us a pass to say, well, you know, the devil made me do it. Because we are ultimately the ones who make the choice to give in to temptation. And I know it's hard to believe in our cultural context, especially one like ours that has largely dismissed the supernatural of, of anything, much less supernatural evil. But let me just ask you, like, have you had those moments when temptation, it, it kind of just inexplicably just comes crashing in on you. You weren't looking for it. You're just going along and all of a sudden it just floods in. Or you react in a way in a situation that's like, wow, I don't even know I could be that terrible. What happened to me in that moment? Or how did I give in so easily in that space? Like, what's going on in those moments? Could it be? Could it be that there is something more at work there? Or especially when you look around at the heinous evil in our world, child abuse and exploitation, genocide. Tomorrow we remember Martin Luther King Jr. And and 50 years after his death, we are still in our country dealing with the fallout of slavery and the ongoing racism and division and racialization of our neighborhoods and our churches that still exist, still persist today. 
I mean, a state of emergency exists in Virginia because of fear of violence of extremist groups at a rally there tomorrow. A few weeks ago, a passenger plane is shot down in Iran at, you know, this is one of the most volatile countries at one of the most volatile moments. Right? Is that just coincidence? Or is there something deep and dark behind some of these things? You can't help but wonder if there's something to supernatural, personal evil. That's what I mean by the battle is worse than we think. We are not just fighting against bad habits or our upbringing or patterns we receive from our parents or just bad influences in our environment. There is something more going on. So yes, it is worse than we think. That's the first thing we see in this passage. But there's also hope because of the second thing, and that is the good news that Jesus has already won. So the battle is worse than we think, but the good news is that Jesus has already run. Jesus resisted. He succeeded where Eve lost, where Adam gave in, where Israel blew it, where you gave up, where I failed. Jesus won. Jesus has won already. But you might be thinking, okay, that's great that Jesus won, but right, if, if Jesus was God, wouldn't it have been impossible for him to sin anyway? Doesn't this, isn't this kind of like a, uh, was this even like a real temptation that Jesus faced? Of course, he could resist temptation. And yes, Jesus was and is truly and fully God. And yet he also was and is truly and fully human. I've always been so helped by C.S. Lewis's insight here. He writes in Mere Christianity. Uh, he uses the language of man, but he's just speaking of, of people. No, no person, no human knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. Lewis is writing in the time of World War II. Uh, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. He says, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only human who never yielded to temptation, is the only human who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Are you following what Lewis is saying here? Because Jesus never gave in, he actually understands temptation better than any one of us. He got to the point that you gave in and he kept resisting. He knows it better than any of us in this room. Now, at this point, as we've walked through, there may not be a lot of surprises for you in this sermon so far. If you've been a part of a church, you may be like, I'm, I'm tracking with you, Bill, this makes sense. Yes, there's a battle. Yes, Jesus wins. But I think for most of us, what we think that means is that, yes, there's a real battle. Jesus has won, so my sin can be forgiven, and I can go to heaven when I die. That that is what the main point of this is. That because Jesus has won, my failures, my losses can be forgiven. And that is true, which is great. That is the good news of the gospel, certainly. But it's not the whole of the good news. Because sometimes we get into this place of saying, well, there's a battle. I lose, but Jesus won, so I can be forgiven. But really, until I die and I'm, you know, totally set free from the presence of sin, I just kind of have to wallow in it. Like, I'm not going to change 
I'm stuck in these same patterns and habits. Yes, I'm, I'm forgiven, but I just got to kind of wait it out until Jesus comes back or I die. And in the mix, I just have to kind of be content to be stuck, to be a loser. But church, that is not our story. That's not what Jesus teaches us. That's not this story. And it doesn't have to be Jesus, your story either because Jesus won so that we can win too. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not talking about some kind of distorted uh, teaching of sinless perfection in this life. But listen, real change is possible. Real growth, real progress is possible. Real victory over Patterns of sin is possible. You don't have to lose anymore. Why? Because now in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the same resources available to us as Jesus had available to him. Listen to how Pastor Rankin Wilburn explains this. I think this is so helpful. His book, Union with Christ, was one of my favorite books I read last year. He says this, We might sometimes imagine that Jesus overcame sin by his divine superpowers that are not available to us, so he can't really know what it's like. But, he says, Jesus was empowered for his ministry by the Spirit, and when he was tempted in the wilderness, he battled against temptation with God's Word. And this is so key. In other words, Jesus had the Spirit and the Word, which is to say he had the very same resources available to you and me, the Spirit and the Word. Jesus, our guide, is with us and equips us on this uphill journey and is able to sympathize with every challenge we face. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus had the Word and the Spirit, which is to say he had the very same resources available to you and to me, the Word and the Spirit. This is so critical for us to understand. I I think sometimes we've missed this. We were never meant to live this Christian life in our own human limitations. Jesus didn't either. He was empowered by the Spirit. He had embodied the Word of God. Those same resources are available to us. And this is where we have to not only learn from just Jesus' teachings, but also his practices, how he lived his life. He is our guide. Um, And so what are the things that made him strong enough to say no, to resist temptation? Well, there are three things here that, that we see that is true of Jesus that can help us too, that we can learn from him. Like Jesus, we can train our bodies, we can train our minds, and we can train our hearts. So first of all, train your body. We can train our bodies to resist temptation, to fight sin. And, and this might surprise some of us because we tend to think of temptation as something happening in this spiritual or ethereal realm. And so our response tends to be, well, then shouldn't we pray more or something like that? Which even praying involves our, our bodies oftentimes. But like Jesus, we are whole physical and spiritual beings together. We are not just spirits. We are bodied, embodied spirits. And if you want to fight spiritual sin, you need to train your physical body. And Jesus, he fasted as part of that training, this 40 days of training. Sometimes we think that 40 days of fasting was putting him in this place of weakness. And true, he is hungry, but actually that fasting is what prepared him to be able to resist temptation, 
the training preparing him to be able to resist. He denies himself a legitimate need because there's nothing wrong with food. The scriptures are clear that food is created as a gift that is to be received with thanksgiving. There's nothing wrong with food, but Jesus denies himself his body truly needs. And when we do that, we train ourselves that when it really matters, we can resist what we don't truly need. If you can resist food, which your body actually needs, then you can surely resist something your body merely desires. Right? Fasting teaches our bodies ultimately who's in charge. That Jesus is our master, not our desires. That you don't have to buy that. You don't have to say that. You don't have to look at that. You can deny yourself. And this is so important culturally because in our moment, there's so much instant gratification available to us that we hardly have to wait or deny ourselves of anything. Even if we don't have money for something, we can borrow it or put it on a credit card or pay later or do installments. We have access to so much whenever we want it. And yet Jesus assumes that his people will fast, saying things like in the Sermon on the Mount, he like has lots of things that he just assumes about his followers. He says when you fast, when you pray, when you give, not, not if you fast or if you pray, but when you fast. And then he goes on to say, this is how you should do it. But he assumes that his followers are going to follow him in this, that we would fast. And so I want to encourage you this week to fast, to skip a meal or, or maybe a whole day of food. Um, or if for medical reasons or uh, maybe you're pregnant or nursing or you're a kid and fasting isn't a good idea for you at this stage, pick something else. You know, fast uh, from your phone or from Netflix or from something like that. But for most of us, skipping a meal is something that we can do. Today uh, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day of remembering the injustices against the unborn. We've already mentioned that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, remembering the past and present racial injustices in our country. So as a whole church, we're naming all five campuses Wednesday, this Wednesday, January 22nd, as a day to do this together. And you'll find, hopefully you receive one on the way in, but like a little bookmark that has kind of a guide to help you, um, to remind you to fast, and then some scripture to pray through around these two issues of injustice, of the unborn and racial injustice. And so maybe you can't do that on Wednesday. If you can't, that's fine. Do it on another day. But we thought there would be some power, some goodness in being able to do this together. If you didn't get one of those bookmarks, there are um, some in the back. You can pick one up on your way out. So let's do this together. Second, train your mind. Jesus had prepared his body, yes. But did you also know how Jesus responded to temptation every time? Every time he responded, not with sort of, here's a list of reasons of why that's wrong, or not just by ignoring it. He responded with Scripture, with the words of God. Now, to state the obvious, Jesus in this moment, this is 2,000 years ago, this is first century, this is pre-printing press, this is certainly pre-smartphone, so it wasn't like Jesus was just carrying a Bible around with him in fact, at that time, no one was just carrying the Bible around with them uh, because the Bible was written on scrolls that were big and heavy and expensive. This is, I've got a picture of one right now. This is actually a new scroll that was just being completed. And that's, that's a Torah scroll. So that's just the first five books of the Old Testament, right? You can't just put that thing in your pocket and carry it around. Okay, Bill, what's your point with this? My point is that Jesus had these passages of Scripture memorized. 
He had trained his mind. He had saturated his mind in scriptures. One of the key ways to battle sin and temptation is not just to read the Bible, which you absolutely should do. Read this book daily. But go a step beyond that and actually begin to memorize parts of it. And Jesus lived in a cultural context where it was normal to have large portions of Scripture memorized. Today, we are just much less of a memory-oriented culture. Uh, and even, like, I would say even the last maybe 10, 15 years with the advent of smartphone and internet, we just have less we need to remember because we can look it up, right? I was in, when I was in high school, uh, it was pre-cell phone. I, was, I didn't have a cell phone yet. And I used to have all kinds of phone numbers from my friends memorized, probably dozens of phone numbers memorized. Today, I have literally three phone numbers. Remember, I have mine, uh, my wife's, and 911. Those are my three. Those are like, if I need to call anyone else, I've got to look that up, right? Uh, and, and, that's, and that's fine. Like, it's great. I have my phone. I don't have to, I can put other things in my head. I don't have to keep all these uh, seven-digit numbers in my head anymore. Um, but this digital revolution has given us instant access to information in the world but sometimes I think that can give us the illusion of, well, because I can look it up on my phone, I don't need to have it embedded in my mind. And maybe that's true of, you know, your, your Aunt Jane's phone number. But when it comes to moments of temptation, you need to have that in your, in your mind. And, and what good does it do me to have access to a dozen English translations of the Bible through my phone in my back pocket if I don't know any passages to look up? <laughs> Because even in a moment of temptation, maybe you can't remember the whole verse, but you remember that line, wasn't that with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. At least if you've had tried memorizing that at some point in your life, you can at least go to your browser, open up a Bible, and look for that text. So start small. Don't, don't let the, kind of the prospect of memorization just kind of overwhelm you. Maybe even just pick a passage like Psalm 23. And I bet that if you took Psalm 23, which is not a long passage, and just read it every day for a month, not even really trying to memorize it, just sat and just read it every day, you'd come close to having it memorized. Or maybe you just even pick one verse, one I'm working on right now, Psalm 1611. It's this great passage that is affirming the goodness of God's presence, that with him, that he reveals the path of eternal life, that with him is fullness of joy, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just spend five minutes a day reading that verse over and over again, meditating on it. What does it reveal about God? What does it reveal about me? What does it reveal about the world in which we live? How things ought to work? How, how things are broken? Train your mind. And then finally, and most importantly this morning, we have to train our hearts because this is the place of our desire and our identity. The heart is where the battleground really is. The heart in the, in the kind of biblical metaphor framework is the place where our, we make our decisions, where we um, make our allegiances, where our will and our desires reside. And you see, this is easy to miss, but Jesus resists not simply because he trained his body and his mind. He certainly did that. But those will only help you if you've also trained your heart, Jesus resisted because he knew in his heart who he was. He knew who he was. His identity was secure. And the verses before this are not incidental. They're not accidentally. And, and immediately before the story, Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus. I never noticed this before and asked the question, why does Luke put the genealogy of Jesus 
right here? Why does he sandwich it in between Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation, right? And a lot of the other Gospels, you just kind of move right from that moment into this temptation moment. But Luke pauses and he wraps up this, and, and Pastor Taylor looked at this last week, he wraps up this moment of Jesus being baptized, the dove descending, the voice saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he kind of interrupts the flow of the story with this genealogy of how Jesus is traced all the way back. And then he gives this temptation. Why? Well, and it hit me this week, though, because here's what happens. In that moment of Jesus' baptism, there is the voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. This is the father speaking of Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then how does the genealogy, if you have your Bible open, end in 338? The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Again, an affirmation of Jesus' identity as the son of God. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's the pleasure of the Father, confident in his identity, rooted in his Father's heart, fueled by the Spirit that enables Jesus to overcome temptation. Because the first thing that the evil one says is, if you are the Son of God, he immediately calls into question what the Father has proclaimed, what the genealogy has proclaimed, that is true of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. He overcame, he went to the cross, he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane again to reject the cross. That's the opportune time, I think, that Luke was referring to him, that again the evil one comes to him in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus to go to the cross and is tempting him, and Jesus resists again. So that those who trust in him are now sons and daughters of this new and better Adam. Not the Adam in the garden who gave in all the way back in Genesis 3, but the new and better Adam of Jesus who has won in the wilderness, who has won on the garden, who has won by conquering the grave. And now we have a father who says of us, because we are united to Christ, that if you are with him, you says of you right now, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased. And when we train our hearts to rest in that truth, to have that be our core identity, then all the other things that we look to for comfort and ease and and to relieve pain, all those things where the enemy comes in and, and begins to bring temptation, those things begin to lose their appeal and their power. And the same Spirit who empowered Jesus, that same Spirit who lived in Him, lives also in us who believe in Him. You don't have to lose anymore. Pastor Brian Loritz, who I think is one of the best preachers of our day. Uh, this picture is actually from our Common Good Conference back in the fall at our Olathe campus. Uh, he, he articulates this so well in his book, Insider Outsider. He writes this, Jesus is one who at his core can identify with us in our crucible of struggle. To women who have been victimized by the male power structures, Jesus responds by saying, hashtag me too. To men who struggle with the physiological yearnings of their loins, Jesus nods his head in solidarity. As a fellow incarnational minority, Jesus stands with people of color wrapping an arm around us and knowing exactly how it feels to be belittled and pillaged of ethnic identity. Indeed, this Jesus Excuse me, I need this Jesus, Brian writes. Yes, I am thankful for his deity, but I am also grateful for his humanity. Jesus is God enough to have overcome his temptations and yet human enough to relate to mine. So church, let us train our bodies 
Let us train our minds, train our hearts, empowered by the Spirit, saturated in the Word. Jesus won, so we don't have to lose anymore. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the victory of Jesus over my own sin and failing. And I pray that you would affirm us, affirm me in the identity that we have as your beloved children. And that from that identity, we would begin to train with Jesus to begin to follow after him, empowered by his spirit, saturated in the word, so that we too can have victory. And may we always rest in the good news of the forgiveness that we have available to us as we go on this journey where we will inevitably fail. But I pray that by your power and your spirit and your word, we would fail less and less and find more and more joy in living the life that you have designed for us and empowered us and given us everything we need for. In Jesus' name we pray these things by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Amen.